0: Good morning, my name is Joey Hokut. for those who don't know know me, um, I'm going to be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 through 56, read along with me. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of, the, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out a sword, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? As you would against a robber, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, and as we gaze at a garden today... May you open our eyes to behold wonderful things. Uh, Let us see what you're doing. Let us see what Jesus has done for us. May we be changed by this encounter with Jesus in a garden. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The garden. What mental images and associations spring up for you at the mention of the garden? Perhaps your first thought is something from childhood, a grandparents' garden patch where fresh vegetables always grew in season, or perhaps growing up you lived next door to someone like Miss Sarah Barnett, who just had a green thumb. Everything she touched grew. She made her whole backyard into a paradise for growing things, which you might be welcomed into or chased out of, as the case may be. You think of the garden as a place of growth and fruitfulness, and it is. Or maybe your mind goes quicker to that magazine photo or some Instagram post you've seen, the image of a garden, an English garden with winding paths of flowers, with ivy growing up stone walls. Or maybe a French garden with eye-pleasing symmetry, straight lines of perfectly trimmed trees, boxed hedges. Or maybe you picture a Japanese garden with water lilies and covered bridge and overhanging cherry blossoms. When you think of a garden, you see a place of beauty, of idyllic refuge, or maybe your first thought is the most idyllic setting of all. When you hear the garden, your first thought is the garden of Eden. Eden. The state of the world before anything was broken. The world before sin. Before futility. Before decay. And before death. That garden was a place of satisfaction and stewardship. Of beneficial dominion over creation, and perfect harmony with the creation. In that garden, mankind ruled the world with God, for God, and it was good. But today, we come to another garden. It's a garden that doesn't look or feel much like Eden at all. It's a garden on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's a garden you could visit today. And not knowing where you were, you could think that there was nothing special about this place at all. It's not especially fruitful. Like your neighbor's or your grandparents' garden. It's actually pretty arid and dry in this place, in this garden. It's not particularly beautiful or idyllic. Like the grounds of Chatsworth or the gardens of Versailles. There's much prettier places to visit in the world. Looking around the Garden of Gethsemane, you might be tempted to think that this garden is about as disconnected from Eden as you can get. But you'd be wrong. These two gardens do have a connection. As a consequence for sin, our parents left the Garden of Eden. But to deal with the consequences of sin... Jesus came to the garden of Gethsemane. Man's rebellion began in a garden. To deal with man's rebellion, God Himself came to another garden. This garden, the garden that was called Gethsemane. In our journey of walking with Jesus to the end, we began last week with the Last Supper, we're going all the way to the cross and the resurrection. We began the last supper where John says of Jesus having loved those who were his own in the world he loved them to the end. Getting up from that supper, Jesus walks his disciples one step closer to the end as he brings them to the garden of Gethsemane. This morning we want to stand there in this garden with Jesus and his disciples and discover what kind of place This garden really is. There are some unique aspects of this garden I want you to see this morning. If you're taking notes, there are six headings. Six headings that will guide us through this passage. Six things we need to see concerning this garden. And the first is this. I want you to see this garden as a place of prayer. The garden as a place of prayer. Verse 36 says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Pray. We're going to see six different things about this garden. And the first and most dominant of these is prayer. Jesus came to this garden to pray. To pray. Why? Why prayer? And why come to a place like this for it? And maybe I should really begin with the most basic question. Here, for some of us, what is prayer? What is prayer? Prayer, at its heart, is the pouring out of our hearts to God. That's the essence of prayer for us, and it doesn't appear to be radically different for Jesus. For Jesus, the depth of a relationship is radically different, but the same essence of prayer still holds. Jesus, very clearly, in this chapter, is pouring out his heart to God. In the garden, Jesus pours out his heart to the Father in a way that isn't completely foreign to any believer. We do this. We pour out our hearts to God. The depths to which he goes is vastly deeper in every way. But Jesus still needed to pour out his heart to God in prayer, just like we do. And he intentionally sought out a place to do it, which is perhaps a piece of the puzzle we need as well, and quite often completely overlook. Jesus went to the garden intentionally to pray. He intentionally picked out the garden as his place of prayer. And for some of us, this is where we are most likely to lose the plot, so to speak. We very piously say... I don't need to seek out a place of prayer because the body of the believer is the new temple, right? The new place of worship and prayer is wherever I happen to be. That's true. I'm glad that's true. But sin can take a truth and twist it. I can pray anywhere can be twisted into excuse to live Prayerlessly everywhere. Everywhere is special can be twisted into living like nowhere is special. In practice, we can get it just as wrong as those who say, I can only pray in a holy place. I can only pray in the temple. I can only pray at church. Linking prayer exclusively to a special place can be an excuse for prayerlessness everywhere else. But never seeking out a place for prayer can also be a symptom of prayerlessness. But what do we see in Jesus? We see both of these realities at work. Jesus prays everywhere he goes, but he also seeks out special places to pray. He goes off alone to the mountain. He brings his disciples alone to the garden. Let me encourage you this week in walking with Jesus to the end. Find your garden, a place you go intentionally for prayer. It doesn't have to be a literal garden, just a place to come and time you set aside to pour out your heart to God. If we want to walk with Jesus to the end, there is a pattern here of walking that's worth following. Seeking out a place to pray. That's the first thing I want you to see. The garden is a place of prayer. Here's the second thing. We want to see the garden as the place of grief. The garden as the place of grief. We see this in verses 37 and 38. Verse 37, and he took With him, Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. As I've already mentioned, Jesus pours out his heart to a depth that probably none of us, certainly none of us, have ever gone. Anyone here? ever poured out their heart in such deep grief that it felt like you were at the point of death? That's Jesus right here. Anyone's soul ever been under such distress that physically the body begins to sweat drops of blood? That's an additional detail Luke gives us in his gospel. Here in the garden, we see Jesus go lower in grief than any of us have ever known. We've had our lows, yes, but this is like Mariana Trench low, the lowest point on the earth, the lowest point of any person in history, the point of greatest pressure and deepest grief. That is where Jesus is, grief to the point of death. What brings Jesus to this point, point? and what can we learn from it? We could say that it's the knowledge of death's approach that brings Jesus to this point of deepest grief. We could say that, but it's a bit like saying an apple peel is all there is to taste of an apple. It's part of it, but the peel covers and contains the real fruit you're meant to taste. For Jesus... A painful death is just the peel of the apple. The peel only covers and contains the real fruit that grieves Jesus' soul. What is it? It's separation from the Father, it's wrath for sin being poured out upon him. For Jesus, a painful death was nothing compared to the agony of atoning for the sin. Of the world. You can see the difference this makes when you compare the way Jesus approached the cross with the way many of his followers approached their executions. Church history is full of martyrs who walk to the stake or into the arena or up to the chopping block with peace written upon their faces. And a joyful chorus upon their lips. People who, like Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts, approach their end, and their countenance testifies to this that they are about to meet their Savior, to be welcomed home into His embrace. Their life's end in this world means a glorious reunion for them in the next, and they know it, they believe it. Contrast the way many Christians have approached their end with how their Lord, the Lord they follow, approached his here. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a marked difference. Jesus knew exactly what awaited him after the garden. He knew that for our end to be sweet, his end had to be bitter. For us, the guilty to inherit the kingdom of light, he, the only innocent one, had to absorb all the darkness, all the sin, all the punishment. As the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange of the gospel. And Jesus is preparing himself for it the innocent one to take upon himself all our sin, all of our guilt, all of our punishment, so that in exchange, his perfect life, his righteousness might be given to us. Isaiah foretold this. Isaiah 53 said, Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He carried them away. For Jesus, the garden became a place of grief, so that for you it might become a place of healing. That's the second thing I want you to see about the garden. Here's the third. We need to see the garden as the place of submission. The garden as the place of submission. Look at verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will. But as you will. I've already likened death to the apple peel of Jesus' agony. The real fruit Jesus had in his stomach was not the painful death, but the spiritual agony of God's wrath being poured out. But Jesus himself gives a better image here in his prayer. a better image than apple. Jesus speaks of a cup, a cup. The bitter cup of God's anger. Let this cup pass from me. We see the same image make an appearance other places in the Bible, particularly in the book of Revelation. God pours out his judgment upon those who have rejected heaven's rule and his Savior, and it's like a cup of wrath being poured out. The nations are made to drink from the cup of God's wrath which they themselves have been adding to by all their acts of treason year after year. In the garden, Jesus knows just what awaits him. He knows he's just hours away from drinking this cup himself. And the prospect is so horrific that he pleads in verse 29, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, if there is another way to appease justice and absorb the punishment due sin, let this cup pass me by. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. In this garden, we see Jesus restoring something that was lost in the original garden. He is restoring the garden to be the place of submission to God. And his will. The first garden, the Garden of Eden, began this way in submission to God. Adam and Eve began by living in fellowship with God and in submission to his will. He gave them charge over all things and only one prohibition you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Submission in that garden looked like nigh unbounded freedom, but For one thing that would cross God's will. One prohibition only must they submit to in their hearts. But when the enemy came into the garden, he said, This one thing is to be desired above all else. It will make you like God. God is willfully withholding what's best from you. And when the serpent's lies were believed, submission to God's will left the garden. And as a consequence, Adam and Eve had to leave too. The world came under a curse until a Savior would come, a son of the woman, Seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head and destroy his works. Through Jesus taking this cup, the cup that began to be filled with the first transgression in the garden and continued to be filled with ours, through Jesus taking this cup, he has restored the garden from a place of climactic disobedience into a place of climactic obedience. From a place of first rebellion into a place of ultimate submission. Into a place of great temptation finally overcome, but not for all. That's the fourth aspect of the garden we'll see today. We'll see the garden as the place of temptation, the place of temptation. Look at verses 40 and 41. Verse 40, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation." The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The first garden was the scene of the first temptation. Our first parents were tempted with a vision of God as one who withholds what is good. We know better than our maker what's best. We'll listen to the serpent and make up our own minds. What will it be? Will it be the serpent's lie or God's truth? Who will we ultimately submit to? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the temptation for Jesus is also one of submission. And joy to the world, he passes the test. He submits to the Father and prepares himself to drink the bitter cup for mankind's salvation. But Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, do not fare as well. For them, the garden is also a place of testing. It's also a place of temptation. Will they obey Jesus? Will they keep watch and pray? Or will they be overcome? Will they be overcome by the mundane nature of it all? By the limits of their imagination or their energy? Not seeing anything special about this moment. Not seeing any cause worth fighting for. Not seeing any battle that's waging around them. Not seeing any spiritual act worth their focus and attention in the moment. Their spirits may have been willing, but their flesh was weak. The garden was also their place of temptation. And it looks like they completely fail to recognize it in the moment, doesn't it? They fall asleep. Again and again. They strike out once, and then a second time, and then a third time as well. Verse 42, uh, he went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed, and came a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples And said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? One, two, three. They strike out each time. The second and even the third time Jesus comes back, he finds his most choice disciples off their guard, sound asleep. But before you and I say, I would have stayed awake. That wouldn't have been me. I would have prayed if Jesus asked me to. Before we say that to ourselves, How many times do we find ourselves being tempted and fail to recognize it at all? We don't recognize the moment of temptation until it's too late, until we're looking at it in the rearview mirror. Do you know why that happens? It's because we don't do what Jesus said in verse 41. We don't keep watch. And pray. We don't keep watch like we're in a war all the time. We get lulled into a false sense of security and forget to be vigilant against sin. To the man who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Watch out, keep watch, or else you'll become complacent, not recognizing the moment of temptation when it's upon you. Keep watch, be alert, and pray, Jesus says. Prayer is a big way that we keep ourselves alert and watching. I can tell you that the single biggest warning sign in my life that I am flying on autopilot through my day, not on alert, is this Am I praying or am I not praying? Am I praying? Is prayer spontaneous and natural throughout my day? When I am praying, it's like I'm living on alert. Like I'm plugged in to Jesus and his power. When I'm not praying, it's like I've joined the disciples in the garden. Falling asleep. So tired. Yes, my spirit may still say it's good to pray, but my flesh just can't be bothered to do it. In that state... It's much easier to give in to temptation, isn't it? Because I won't even recognize it as such when it comes. Jesus' disciples didn't recognize the temptation. Or even that Jesus told them directly how to overcome it. Keep alert and keep praying. Keep alert. Keep praying, lest temptation overcome you. The garden was a place of temptation. In the beginning for Adam and Eve and in Gethsemane for Jesus and his disciples. But where our first parents and the first disciples failed to recognize the importance of the moment and the reality of temptation, Jesus did. And he succeeded. He succeeded knowing what else the garden would become. Here's the fifth thing I want you to see today. The garden as the place of betrayal. The garden as the place of betrayal. We see that in verses 45 through 50, and then again in verses 54 through 56. Look at verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him. Immediately Jesus went up to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. Betrayal. Betrayal in the garden. That's a theme in the Bible, isn't it? Betrayal in the garden. Mankind betrayed God once in the Garden of Eden, and in doing so now again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you would think that God would have seen this plot point coming, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? And you'd be right. God sees all plot points coming. Look at verse 45 and uh, no, 55 and 56. Is that right? Yes, I think it is. Okay, at this time, uh, uh, Jesus saw the crowds. He said, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? Have you come against me as a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. All this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus saw this plot point coming. Because God sees all plot points coming. Jesus knows the location of a fish in the pond with a coin in his mouth. He he knows it all. Jesus knows all the plot points of history. And even how they would have diverged had one thing been different. Remember, he says, woe to you, Coruscant, Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been done in you, which had been done in Tyre and Siddam, they would have repented long ago. In sackcloth and ashes. Jesus knows the plot points of history, how they would have gone had one thing been different. How does he know this? He knows because he's God. And because, as God, he is the author of this story. He wrote the story and foretold how this would happen. He foretold his own betrayal. Look back with me, same chapter, but verse 24. Look at verse 24 from the Last Supper. Jesus said, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be good, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Jesus said, This story has to unfold the way God wrote it. As it was written of him, it has to be done. It has to unfold the way God wrote it. But the actors in this drama are still responsible for the parts that they play. The Bible teaches both of these big truths. God is in complete control. He wrote the story. And we are completely responsible for what we do in the story. The Bible teaches these two big truths very often in the same breath. Like verse 24 this, it has to happen to the Son of Man, just as it is written. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed! It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. God is in control of the story. Jesus says it before he is betrayed, and he affirms this truth again while he is being betrayed. Uh, look at verse fifty-four. It says this is happening. Verse fifty-four. How then? Will the Son of Man, how then will the Scripture be fulfilled, which says it must happen this way? I could do something different, Jesus says. I could call legions of angels, but I'm not. Because this is the story God has written. This is how the Scripture must be fulfilled. It must happen this way and no other. In the midst of the betrayal, Jesus emphasizes this point again and again. It must happen this way. Verse 54. And again, verse 56. All this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. It must happen this way. This betrayal of Jesus in the garden isn't a mistake. Jesus didn't make a bad choice with Judas. This isn't a mistake. This is God's plan. This is God's plan A. Likewise, Mankind's original betrayal in the garden didn't trash God's original plan, required him to go back to the drawing board again. No, the original plan is still unfolding. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This betrayal and Jesus crucified was part of God's plan before he made anything else. History is, after all, His story. It's a story that puts on display God's love and his wrath, his grace and his justice, his holiness and his mercy, his patience with sinners and his punishment for sin. This is the God who offers himself to you. The God who was betrayed in a garden for you. Let's see our sixth and final point as we draw things to a close. Let's see finally the garden as a place of strife and mending. Verses 51 through 53. The garden as a place of strife and mending. Verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? We see here in the garden an intense scene of strife. As Jesus' disciples, who are finally waking up to realize this is a pivotal moment, these disciples wake up. From sleep And they spring into violent action. John's gospel tells us that the disciple who drew his sword in verse 51 was Peter. Peter did this. And if you're wondering, how did Peter manage to cut off an ear? It probably wasn't by going, eh, eh, striking at someone. It was probably more of a whoosh and the guy just barely getting out of the way and taking off an ear. Peter was going for the kill. This garden was a scene of intense cut off your head strife, which in a way is fitting. Because the first garden was a scene of mankind's original strife, strife with the enemy, strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the bruising of the heel, the crushing of the head, strife with with the enemy, strife also with one another, part of the curse. And bound up in the nature of sin is this, that we don't relate to each other anymore the way we should. Man and wife, there's strife, there's blame. The woman you gave me did this. There's manipulation, there's domineering. The first two sons of this union, Cain and Abel, what did they do? They there's murder. There was such strife that one killed the other. This garden was a scene of strife with the enemy, Strife with one another and, most importantly, strife with God. We made ourselves rebels against God in the garden. We committed treason and became enemies of God in the garden. But there is hope, isn't there? There is hope. Luke, in his gospel, gives us an additional detail that I imagine you remember pretty well. Yes, there's strife in this garden with Peter cutting off an ear. But in the midst of the strife, Jesus does a mending work. He heals the ear of his enemy. The man who came to arrest Jesus, by Jesus himself, was arrested. By one act of unsolicited mercy, of undeserved kindness. And it reminds me of that moment Leaving another garden long ago, in an act of unsolicited mercy, God himself skins and makes clothes for those who had just betrayed him. God is still doing this today. In the midst of our strife and mess, God is doing a mending work, a work of grace and restoration. He's doing it daily by applying to our hearts the good news about Jesus, Who he is, what he has done for us. He is changing our old default settings from striking our enemies to loving our enemies, from strife against those who oppose us to praying for those who persecute us. Walking with Jesus to the end means walking with him in this mending work, it means walking with him in prayer. And in our times of grief. In times of temptation. And in moments of betrayal. It means walking with him in submission to God's reign and will. In other words, walking with Jesus to the end means walking with him in this garden. Let's pray together. Father. May we walk with our Lord today in the garden of his agony and betrayal. May we kneel beside him in prayer. May we feel the anticipation for the bitter cup that he is about to take hold of and drink to the dregs. May we see it all done as an act of love and grace to us. And in, it, in seeing it, may we be changed. May our hearts be changed. May we rejoice to see a Savior who has overcome every temptation, who has succeeded at every point where we have failed. May we see ourselves as enemies who have come to arrest the King, but who ourselves have been arrested by his unsolicited acts of grace and kindness to us. Uh, you heal and mend what we have broken. May we feel that keenly this morning. And in our hearts, may we rejoice and embrace such a king who has gone before us. May we love him as he has loved us. May we walk with him to the end. And may that be our heart's commitment this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name as we continue to respond. Amen.